Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big, eclectic show for you today, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll meet writer Kean Cruz. He has a degree in film studies and philosophy and is a new dad. He combines all of that in his new book, Dad Bod, Portraits of Pop Culture Papas, a clever collection of essays about father figures in modern culture. He has a look at everyone from Gandalf to Homer Simpson to unpack the qualities that inform our collective image of fatherhood. Stick around. You'll want to hear what First Blood, that's the first Rambo movie, can teach us about dealing with toddlers. It's fun stuff. Later, Nyla Anukshuk, director of Slashback, a cool new coming-of-age story with an indigenous and science fiction twist and a message about friendship and what it means to fight for community, stops by to tell us all about the challenges of taking a crew of 50 people to Baffin Island in the summer of 2019 to make this film. That's a little bit later. First up... If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. Looking for trouble? Just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green eyed man. He died because I'm That was a quick hit from Elvis, the new film about the king of rock and roll from Moulin Rouge director Baz Luhrmann. The film covers 20-ish years in the lives of Elvis and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, through the birth of rock and roll in the late 1950s and the cheesy Hollywood years to the legendary 1968 comeback special and the Las Vegas rise and fall. It's the story of how Elvis and the Colonel shimmied and shook their way to the top of the charts and into the history books. I caught up with director Baz Luhrmann and his stars. That's Austin Butler, who hands in a tremendous performance as Elvis. That was him. You just heard him singing. It's not an impersonation. It's something deeper, and there's already a lot of Oscar buzz around this performance. Joining them is Olivia de Young, who plays Priscilla Presley, Elvis's widow, in the film. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? Get a haircut, buttercup! In that moment... I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. The greatest show on earth. Elvis has left the building. Baz, I'll start with you because you've been involved with this film the longest. You speak of using Elvis as a way of exploring America. What does the story of Elvis Presley tell us about the United States? Oh, I mean, there's so many layers. And certainly you can't delve into a um, look at America in the 50s, 60s and 70s without looking at the issue of race and of social turmoil and of, like just the push-me-pull-you. I mean, though the amount, there are... There are the assassinations and the historical events that happen throughout the movie that are reflected through where Elvis is um, are very real. And, you know, it's kind of a history play. But also, and above and beyond everything else, it's a cautionary tale about the show and the business. I mean, Colonel Tom Parker, never Colonel, never Tom, never Parker. This, you know, the big, big American gestures. Sell, sell, sell. Ho, 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 ho,
and the sensitivity of this artist who the good, the bad, and the ugly was there to reflect back to us through, through that entire period. And it's there, I think, to reflect to us today. Austin, I'm just going to follow up on Baz's answer. Do you really think that people understand the full width and breadth of Elvis's story? There's so many layers to it, and we all see him through a slightly different lens. I tend to think of him from the 68 comeback special, but there are so many facets to him. Do you think that it's possible to see the person that Elvis actually was? I think the vast majority don't. Yeah, I think I think most people don't, um, because at this point he's been relegated to either a Halloween costume or in this or a caricature that your uncle does, you know, or it's this thing where people will go to the home in Tupelo and kiss the floor where he was born, and so there's this this uh, being held up to such an iconic status that he he is larger than human. And uh, and so I, I think a lot of people don't know the sensitive side of him and and the spiritual side of him and as well as the fact of the thing where you have an icon that you kind of think that they just came out of nowhere, but putting his story into context, as as I know you know a lot more than the than the average layman, you know, but but putting his story into context of uh, like what Baz was saying, the the stories of him going to the gospel tent when he's such a young boy and and feeling the spirit of gospel music and uh, being down on Beale Street and being so inspired by the clothing and and by Little Richard and Sister Rosetta Tharp and uh, Big Mama Thornton and and I mean all of that is just um, is is a, a part of his story that I think there's many misconceptions about and credit hasn't been given where credit is due a lot of the time and uh, and so yeah I'm really proud of the fact that I get to be a part of of this film with Baz and Olivia and and uh, and, and it's it's really remarkable what Baz has done with this because to to find a way of telling his story from a little boy to when he passes away mm-hmm. in a film. I, I can't even wrap my mind around how you did this, Baz. I mean, it really is remarkable. You've done such a brilliant job. <laughs> Me neither. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Baz Luhrmann, Austin Butler, and Olivia de Jong on The Richard Krause Show. Their movie Elvis is in theaters everywhere right now. Olivia, we all know how important Priscilla was to Elvis in this particular section of his life. Tell me about her journey, though, from your perspective. There is a heart-wrenching scene where you break up with Elvis, essentially saying, this is it, I can't take this anymore. It's a gut-wrenching scene uh, played out from the point of a woman who's finally putting herself first, which probably wasn't the case a lot of times in those days. So tell me a little bit about playing that. And I don't think you had met Priscilla at that point, right? No, I had not. We had not touched base until after the fact. Um, You know, I think from the get-go, I maybe it was just because of... Um, my interpretation of 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 women and how I I would like or love for them to be portrayed, which is always with a little bit more strength. Mm-hmm. I think that with Priscilla, her sensitivity is very important, and I think it would have been maybe easy to fall into the trope of just playing like a sensitive, quiet, small woman. But for me, I I sort of was like, this sensitivity is a strength, and this femininity is a strength, and it is heartbreaking what happened um, and how you know they 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 broke up. But I think what was beautiful about this film, 
and what was really important for the for their narrative, I think, to reintroduce to to I guess the people, for lack of a better word, um, is is the fact that they remained incredibly close friends and incredibly close confidants after their divorce. And um, she continued to support his legacy. I think he was. She was one of. You know, she really knew how much that he meant to the people, and how much that he meant to the world. You know, it's such a testament to their connection. And I think, you know, for the scenes that I did have, I wanted that 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 backbone to be there. And I, I think she was an incredibly important part of his life. She really grounded him. I think she really was the one person, you know, maybe in the entire world that really saw him. So I think those were important things I wanted to touch on. Okay, this question's for all of you. If you had to pick one Elvis song and one Elvis film as essential, I guess, primers about Elvis for someone who's not as familiar with him as we are, what would they be? I mean, I, I mean, the film is, the, the film is Kidrell because, just because actually you realize when he says at the end of the movie, I've never done anything significant, I'm almost 40, and his dream of being an actor, you can see that he really did have potential. For me, the song, and I don't do lists, but I gotta say that the film closes out within the ghetto. And when he sings in the ghetto, <clears throat> I've seen a lot of younger people hear that song and go, I had no idea Elvis Presley recorded a song like that. And the way he sings it with, spirit, with spiritual purity, he connects, and I think it shows you how he can affect people and tell a story through song. Mm. Austin, how about you? I, I agree on King Creole. Um, I mean, there, there's there's a, a ton of these films out there, like Wild in the Country, or, or you know, that, where I just think he's actually extraordinary. But um, I think King Creole because of the fact that that was a film that was being prepped for James Dean. That was Michael Curtiz directing. You know, th this is this is a moment where it showed so much promise for his career. Um, and I think he's he's really great in it. Um, and as far as songs, it's so hard to choose. I mean, the first one that came to my mind is American Trilogy, mm -hmm. because it's it's just the you get to hear these th yeah. three different <clears throat> emotional places. It's three songs put together. It's essentially about mm -hmm. unity. We're we're mm -hmm. taking songs from across the line and bringing them together into one mm -hmm. piece of music. And and then also just the way that it has that little, what do you call that, an interlude in the middle where it sort of mm, comes absolutely. down That's and right. then the crescendo at the end. Yeah, it's just every time it lifts my soul. Um, mm. So yeah, I'd probably say that right now. Olivia, what do you think? I'll keep it short. I'm Chain Melody. Oh. Yeah, I just, yeah. you know, as someone who didn't know much about Elvis, I that that song just really touched me. And I think, you know, the final performance... Um, was, yeah, really touched me. So, mm -hmm. thanks very much, and congratulations on the movie. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank, thank you. So you. Most horror movies take place in the dark, but the spunky, micro-budgeted slashback, a new coming-of-age alien invasion movie now playing in theaters, is really unique. It's set in a remote fishing village in Nunavut, and the action happens under the relentless glare of 24-hour summer solstice sunlight. The story sees a group of friends discover an alien invasion in their tiny Arctic hamlet, and it's up to them to fight back using makeshift weapons and horror movie knowledge. Good morning, Pugnatu. It's the longest day of the year, and what a beautiful one. This place is like a ghost town. For real lame. Welcome to Crap Hole. Population, who cares? Pang? What other crap hole are you living in? I think Pang is awesome. You guys! What is it? <laughs> 
like pure pants scary. What was it? Eva. When Eva comes to our world, they can disguise themselves as anything. They're like hunter aliens. You said aliens? They came here to hunt us. But what they don't know is that we're the best hunters there is. Let's go hunting. Nyla Inukshuk, the director of Slashback, took a crew of 50 people to Baffin Island in the summer of 2019 to make this film, which is now being compared to Jordan Peele's Get Out and John Carpenter's The Thing. For me, Slashback evokes memories of Attack the Block, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and The Thing, with just a little dash of Super 8 thrown in for good measure. And yet, it manages to do something unique. It works as a coming-of-age story with sci-fi overtones, but it's the characters and the location that sets it apart. Mixing an exploration of indigenous identity and culture with badass kids summoning all their abilities to protect their community deepens the story, adding layers of subtext to a familiarish action story. Let's get to know the film's director, Nyla Inukshuk. You grew up being obsessed with horror movies, from what I understand. What was it about them that appealed to you so much? I don't know. I think that when I when I was younger, I think that there was uh, almost a sense of getting away with something, watching, watching scary movies. Um, I think that I, it probably had to do with the fact that I was... I was watching movies that maybe were a little bit too mature for me. Um, my mom loves scary movies as well and has a, an absolute love of Hitchcock. And so I, I think I was eight years old. I was in third grade when my mom first uh, had it, it rented the movie, The Birds and, and had me watch that at a sleepover. And it was one of these almost like traumatizing experiences, but I, I think that I really kind of enjoyed the fact that I was able to, you know, I was allowed to be watching something that was so, so gory and disgusting. They had to shoot it in black and white. <laughs> well, now, do you think that if your brother hadn't broken his leg and been given a camcorder, which then you took and started making your own short films with, that you'd be making movies today? Oh, I think I probably would have found a way to get get yeah. my hands on a on a camcorder. I, I was um, at that point making certainly kind of writing scripts and, and that sort of thing. And I was so lucky uh, in, in my school district, they had this, these focus programs that allowed you to spend a semester going to a school that was outside of where you were supposed to go. Um, and they had these programs that just kind of focused on a certain thing. So some, some were radio, another was theater. And then they had this kind of film program where essentially you went in the morning and you had media studies for the morning. And then in the afternoon, you were given access to these video cameras and, and computers with Final Cut Pro and the time to just make movies with, it, with yeah. a group of people that you met there. And um, some of those are, you know, still some of my best friends that I, that are still making movies and, um, so that was just this also this great, uh, great chance for me to explore making things um, at when I think when you're when you're 16 and 17, you 
feel like there's all of this pressure on you to figure out exactly what you want to do. You're listening to Nyla Inukshuk on The Richard Krause Show. Find her film Slashback in a theater near you. And for me, I was like thinking about where I would be going to school after high school and, and what I would be doing. And I felt like I had to figure it all out. And I knew that I loved movies, but I also felt like I should be doing something maybe more important. <laughs> and um, so to have the opportunity to actually spend some time making, making movies was um, really special, I think, because it, get, it, it really allowed me to, to realize that it was possible to do it as a job and, and that it was something that I really loved and that I wanted to, to continue to pursue. And, and that's essentially, in the end, um, why I chose to go to, to film school. Well, and that it's important. You said in that answer that you were trying to think of, you know, maybe doing something that was more important than making films. But when you think about a movie like Slashback, uh, what you have here is uh, a, a female Indigenous filmmaker making a movie about a, a group of Indigenous girls who fight back, uh, who are powerful characters at the center of, 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 of a cool coming-of-age story. And those messages are important. Representation is important. And the idea of being able to weave together uh, Indigenous culture with a story uh, that has aliens and <laughs> and and other elements like that in in it, I think is important, and I think that it will really resonate with people. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. I'll, I'll tell my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mom uh, was one of the reasons that you made Slashback. From what I understand, she said, "Make me uh, the scariest movie." that you can. I want to see a really scary <laughs> film. So this movie has some scary moments in it, but it's sci-fi. It's a coming yeah. age. There's a lot of things no, happening. It's not that movie. I, I don't think I've made the scariest movie she's ever seen. I think, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, and I love, I love horror. And, um, and so I, I've got other ideas and um, uh, maybe it will be at movie number three. that will be super scary. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, tell me about the casting process for the young actors and actresses uh, in this film. You you held acting workshops, which I think is such a, a a great thing, because auditions nobody likes them, nobody's good at them, nobody particularly wants to do them. But acting workshops, you get to express your creativity, and it's different. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process and finding your cast. Yeah, that was a really fun process. And, and certainly for me, I, I'm not an actor. I um, got to work with Christine Tutu, who's this amazing theater actor in Nunavut, who ended up working in our props department. Um, and we had this script for the proof of concept that I had written. And um, so when it was, we invited kids out into um, the 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 arts organization that we were working with to that space for a couple of days for acting workshops. It was so great to see the turnout, how many young people came out and just wanted to be a part. And that's where I met so many of my cast. And that was um, quite a few years ago now. And, and Alexis and Chelsea, I think they were 11 or 12 years old at the acting workshops. And, um, and it was just this uh, great, chance to, to meet the kids. And then as we're, as we're um, 
having kids try out the scenes. I'm switching this person for this person. Why don't we try this group? And, and then slowly over a couple of days, finding, finding the cast for the proof of concept. And so that was just such a, such a fun, such a fun process. And then when Ryan Cavan, my co-writer came on board and then we were working with a lot of the same cast to develop the script, they were showing us around, taking us out on boat rides and fishing and, and um, out to cabins and, and really helping us develop the dynamics of the, of the characters and, and how they work together and their relationships with each other. Um, and also just the, the individual characters as well. And what were you looking for kind of specifically uh, when you were doing these workshops? Because, I mean, the experience of being in a movie is pretty singular. If you've never done it, you don't know what it's going to be like. So you have to find kids who are going to be able to adapt to that situation, learn lines, do all that kind of thing. But what was it really that you were looking for? Yeah, I mean, I did have some of the characters already in my head of, of, of what they would be like. And mm -hmm. so in a way, I was almost I felt like it would be easier to be finding kids that were almost were, were bringing the characters as I saw them to life and bringing right. something new to them, but were in a way similar to their to their characters. Um, and in some ways, that's what ended up happening. Uh, Tessiana, who plays Micah, that she really is um, there in so many ways, in some ways she's like her character, but in so many ways, not like her character at all. And, um, and so it was, it, but, but certainly she was able to draw, draw from, um, from things within the character or people she knew. Um, but it was such a, such a fun process to, to kind of work with the cast and see who, um, who came with what and and some people like Alexis who was 12 years old when when I 11 or 12 when I first met her she just came with so much spunk and energy that she ended up just bringing so much to the character and informing her character in a way and um and then we ended up meeting her younger sister Frankie who ended up playing Tassiana's sister in the movie um so, so that kind of happened pretty organically. Um, and because we had been working with each other since the proof of concept, when it came to developing the script and then, and then later the movie, these girls had already known each other um, and been kind of working with each other outside of just the normal school environment right. with me for, for a couple of years. And so then this was just more of a, why don't we continue this work that we're doing and spend a summer together in Pang and make this movie? And, and so it was, um, it was really uh, kind of a fun adventure for us. But uh, I think that the, the, the fact that the girls had spent quite a bit of time together already and had a dynamic as, as friends themselves, that that, that helped with uh, a lot with, the, with just the process of making it. Well, I think it shows in the film as well. There's, you know, very specific dynamics between the girls. They don't always get along, which is kind of interesting to see in a mm -hmm. in a film like this. And it, they they struck me as being really authentic, and that's hard to that's hard to find. You can't buy authenticity. I don't. Think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that that was really fun for the girls to play around with as well. And and certainly, I mean, when you're 
13 and 14, there is going to be drama. And um, <laughs> so, so that, that sort of thing was, it, I mean, it happens in, you, you kind of see it in real life playing out in different social dynamics. And um, so that was kind of fun for us to explore within the, the, the characters in the movie. You're listening to Nyla Anukshuk on The Richard Krauss Show. Find her film Slashback at a theater near you. There must have been challenges shooting uh, in the Arctic. Are there any that you can tell us about? I mean, I would imagine if you blow a light that there isn't a, it's not easy to run down to the lighting store and get another one. What's uh, the, what were some of the challenges? We kind of were like talking about it like it was a cruise ship. Like everything has to be on the boat before we all take off because if something happens. Um, And we were going into a community that had a lot of, uh, challenges just when when it comes to resources um, and having enough for their own communities. There's a housing housing crisis, a food um, food crisis, and the community of Pang is accessible by air. It has cargo flights come in, but also gets a lot of its food from these ships that come only when the ice isn't frozen. Um, so in the it, it, it's uh, all of uh, having. Uh, 60, 70 people come into the community was going to be a really big imposition. And um, there wasn't enough housing uh, in in Pang. There isn't enough housing for the people that live there. So when I was doing a location scout with one of my producers, we actually had one of the only ways we knew it would be possible to make the movie was if the principals of the high school and the grade school let us essentially move in from when the time the teachers leave to the schools. to the schools. Yeah. And so wow. we shipped up 60 beds and mattresses. Um, and we set up all of the classrooms as bedrooms. So essentially two bedroom, two beds per classroom. Everybody had a roommate. And uh, all meals were served in the gym, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's there's no restaurants in Pang. Um, and it was this, it was this crazy adventure. The kind of people that agree to this are kind of the best kind of people and so we had this amazing crew um and it was and so our our deadline on finishing the movie it really was kind of crazy because when we our last day in there um it was like a sunday and we were all packing our bags and flying out and moving out of the school and on tuesday classes would be taught there it was um it was kind of bonkers, but we somehow made it work. So there were challenge after challenge um, with, with shooting in this community. And we'd been told it was essentially impossible, which it, it basically was. Um, but that's we. A, that's a challenge, though. When someone says it's impossible, that's you, you have to rise to that challenge, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a highlight when you, when you think about the shooting, when you think about the finished film itself, or maybe just the release? Maybe it's just so cool to see this movie coming out now and on screens. Uh, is there a highlight for you? Yeah, seeing, I, I think working with the cast has really been a highlight for me. These young women um, who I met when they were, um, sorry, like I'm getting emotional, but it's because I, you know, we've worked together since they were kids and and seeing them grow up with the movie and, and now seeing them be able to share it with audiences. And it, it's been just this really uh, special experience uh, for me to be able to share it with them. Perhaps you have to wait 
like 10 years, do one of those, what were they called? The seven up movies. Remember every seven years, they <laughs> yeah, revisit the same those. kids. And yeah. And in, in, in another seven years, you uh, go back and the, all the, the same girls go on another adventure. Oh my gosh. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nyla, thank you so much. A pleasure to speak to you and uh, congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. That was Nyla Anukshuk, director of Slashback on The Richard Krause Show. It's a really cool film, and it's a statement on friendship and what it means to fight for community. Check your local theater listings for a showtime near you. In this segment, we'll meet writer Kean Cruz. He has a degree in film studies and philosophy, and he's a new dad. He combines all of that stuff in his new book, Dad Bod, Portraits of Pop Culture Papas. A clever collection of essays about father figures in popular culture, he has a look at everyone from Gandalf to Homer Simpson to unpack the qualities that inform our collective image of fatherhood. So stick around and find out what he says Rambo, as seen in First Blood, can teach us about the behavior of toddlers. That's right. Rambo will teach us about toddlers in just a few minutes. Kean Cruz, join me via Zoom. Die Hard was the last movie that you saw before your son was born. You say that's a really appropriate movie for you to see at that time. Why so? Well, that's because Die Hard is my favorite movie of all time. At that point in time, I'd seen it something like 20 times in theaters, dozens of times on airplanes, laptops, televisions. It's, it's For some people, it's The Princess Bride. You know, where they can recite every single line. For me, it's Die Hard. And what relationship does that then have uh, with the book and to the book? Well, the fun, Well, I guess the bit of a spoiler, I start with Die Hard. I go through the journey of unpacking all these different uh, tropes and archetypes surrounding fatherhood, masculinity, identity, and becoming a father. And then I come right back to Die Hard at the end to say, okay, now that we've gone on this journey, unpacking what I think about dads, where dads have come and gone in pop, in pop culture for the last 35 years, then we come back to Die Hard and I realize that's the guy I am. Like if I'm going to associate with any one of these archetypes, it's the Die Hard guy. But also that's the guy I have to transcend in order to be the dad I really want to be. I have to go beyond that picture of masculinity. Right. And and we're talking about the John McClane running in his bare feet across broken glass. So the, yeah. the, that whole that whole thing that uh, is one of the things that makes the movie so memorable. But uh, you're working to get past that and explain that to me. Well, I guess there's two sides of it, um, which is the, the really fun thing we're using Die Hard in a book about being a dad is on the one hand, it's just what it feels like to be a new dad. You are completely in over your head. You are trapped. I mean, trapped is maybe the wrong word to use, but you're in a situation you cannot escape, just like John McClane. And you have to use the resources that you have on hand. You end up talking to yourself. You're slowly going crazy. The beautiful thing about Bruce Willis's performance there is he gave us the first vulnerable action hero. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff is is awesome and a very cool point of entry. But... um, the deeper emotional story of Die Hard, I think, comes in the scene when he's, again, spoiler alert, yanking the glass out of his feet. Right. And he realizes he never apologized to his wife. The line is something like, she's heard me say, I love you a thousand times, but I've never said I'm sorry. And it's that understanding of 
dynamics between partners or dynamics between um, two people as it being a power struggle, that's the thing that I want to transcend myself and that, you know, hopefully other people too. And you said that you wrote Dad Bod uh, as you were uh, or experiencing or going through the first few years of your son's life. And this is what I liked, as you changed from random guy to dad. And then you talk about some of the changes. You know, you're not the main character anymore, that kind of thing. Tell me a little bit about that change from random guy to dad. I don't know. I mean... I don't know if everybody has this experience, but I felt uh, as a random guy, I feel like, you know, I'm beholden to none. Mm. I'm just, I'm just living my life. I'm making my choices. I'm trying to be like a reasonable human being or a good person, maybe is another way of putting it. But I didn't really have um, a thing I had to do. I didn't like a job, I'd leave it. Right. I didn't like the part of the country and I'd, I'd go to another country or something. Um, you know, I was kind of a vagabond. And uh, I was I was just a random guy kind of following the winds of chance, uh, as you are when you're young and goofy. You're listening to Kean Cruz on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Dad Bod, Portraits of Pop Culture Papas, is available wherever you buy fine books. I guess the, the, the core thing is like your life becomes about all this other stuff mm -hmm. that um, for me, like I was really not prepared for that. Like I tried to read parenting books and go to parenting classes and talk to other parents and everything else. But it's one of those things in life that until you go through it, you have no idea what it's mm -hmm. really like because it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you take advice from uh, kind of some odd and maybe not odd, but unlikely sources like First Blood uh, <laughs> is, is one of the films that comes up uh, as an example of, you know, there's some pretty good fatherly advice in there. Absolutely. I mean, and for people who don't know, it was yeah, the so, first Rambo movie. Yeah, so. For people who know, First Blood is the first Rambo movie. And this might be the, you know, the sleep deprivation talking. <laughs> this might be the fact that when I'm in the middle of this book and in the middle of raising my toddler, I try to think of everything under that lens, right? So maybe it's lens comes first. However, on, on my reading, Rambo is a perfect example of what to not do when you have a truculent toddler because a toddler, just like John Rambo, the PTSD-suffering <laughs> Vietnam veteran, they have no wider scope for what's going on in a conflict. So if you have a miscommunication, just like Rambo and the sheriff do at the beginning of the movie, let's say in real life, you want your toddler to you know, pick up the juice that they just spilled, or you want them to get in the shopping cart because you have to get out of the grocery store. They're going to say no. <laughs> and if you push directly against that, which is the way the sheriff uh, and, and the entire society acts in Rambo. If you push directly against them, they're going to dig in their heels. And to quote Rambo, they're going to give you a war like you couldn't imagine. And so instead, because if you dig in like that, the toddler will never give up. This is the most important thing. They will scream bloody fury at you for a very long time. And if you are in the grocery store, that'll be very awkward. Um, so, in, so instead, what's in this remarkable scene where um, Rambo's boss, like his old colonel from the army, swoops in and, he's, and, he, and he just lays it out in his opening monologue. He says that they have to diffuse the situation. They have to stop pushing. They have to take off the heat. Let Rambo escape. Let him think that he's winning. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the line is something like, then he'll go off and, you know, he'll pick up a job being a dishwasher somewhere or in a used car lot, cleaning cars, and then he can just pick them up easily. Now, of course, in Rambo, 
the antagonist, the sheriff, being a big macho dude, he can't possibly let it go. So instead he pushes and pushes and pushes and it reaches, you know, the dramatic conflagration of one of uh, the most excellent set piece thrillers of the late seventies, early eighties. Um, you don't want to do that with a toddler. You do want to, like that, that advice that the sheriff gives sounds exactly like the advice I would give any parent who has a screaming toddler on their hands, which is connect, then redirect, let them think that they've won and then guide them towards the place they should actually be. Whether or not that's cleaning up, not getting to play anymore, having to go home from the, the swing set, which is why you see parents so often being like, okay, I'll give you one more ride down the slide before we get in the car. Because letting them win fills up their toddler bucket. So yeah, Rambo's basically a toddler, which is a very fun way to look at that movie. That was Kean Cruz. Find his book, Dad Bod Portraits of Pop Culture Papas, wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Kean. A big thanks to Nyla and Nookshuk. Find Slashback playing at a theater near you. And of course, a huge thanks to Baz Luhrmann, to Austin Butler, and to Olivia DeYoung for stopping by. Check out Elvis. It's really good, and it's playing absolutely everywhere. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. Mm-hmm.